Luke chapter 21 and verses 1 to 4, the widow's offering. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Thanks, Alison. Good morning. Always so good to, to be in church, to be opening God's Word together. Um, my name's Mark Cameron. I'm the director of worship here, and um, it's a privilege to get to do this together this morning in this place. I wonder if when we come to the sermon, what we expect in a church service and what we hope for, how do we engage? And I just want to encourage us, um, when, when that's happening, let's get the, the Bible out. It's really good to check that what we're speaking on is there. And, um, and this is a conversation. This is a study together. This is us diving in. Um, and so I want to encourage us, let's engage with this, whatever helps for you. If that's taking notes, um, if that's um, having your phone available, if it's just smiling and nodding, if, if we get kind of concerned blank faces, I feel threatened and that's okay. But let's dive into this together because I believe if, if we're here and we've, we've got up on Sunday, then I'm here to see what God's going to do. I'm committed to that. I'm committed to seeing what God wants to do in me and in us this morning. Um, as we go into this passage, it, it reminds me of a time that I took some uh, Swedish youth exchange friends to Edinburgh Castle. Now, Edinburgh Castle is that big thing in the middle of our city that all the tourists go to. And uh, a couple times a year, they, they shoot fireworks off it, and, and then all those people leave, and we kind of get back to normal. But um, apparently, you can go inside, which is amazing. And uh, I sometimes do that if there's people visiting, and, uh, and we have this, this place. So I went in with uh, these Swedish friends to Edinburgh Castle, and the big, the big thing I was excited to show them was the Stone of Destiny. The stone of destiny sounds exciting to the Swedes. They think, ooh, is it the ruby? Or they think, ooh, is it the sapphire? Yeah. And um, they get really excited about this stone. And so we go through the maze that leads towards the stone of destiny. And there's all the history of Scotland there. And I'm, I'm waxing lyrical with one of the Swedes about it, getting caught back, and a bunch of them go forward, and oh, they get to see the stone of destiny where kings and queens have had their coronation for generations, and we stole it back. We have the stone of destiny in our midst again. And I come out the other side to the courtyard, and I see the group of Swedes. I say, hey, what did you think of the stone of destiny? And they had, uh, they had a look that's probably similar to when a Swedish person goes to Ikea and there's no meatballs and dime cake. Painful, heart-searing disappointment. And they said, it's a stone. I said, of course it's a stone. It's the stone of destiny. And I thought it was a ruby. Nope, it's a block of concrete. And that's it. And there was something 
about this passage that as I burrowed into it to prepare, that almost gave me this similar experience. I thought we had a ruby. I thought we had this wonderful example of someone that Jesus says, be like this person. And I find that we have a different situation unfolding in the context, and it's left me a bit uncomfortable. So um, I'm going to bring the passage out as well, and I I suppose the way I previously read this uh, passage might have sounded a little more like this. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Wow. I used to have that kind of sense of this passage. But around the passage, in the the text in context, we have some contention for me. So if this passage one to four is here, then on this side and on this side, we've got a different story going on. So if I look back at Luke 20 and 45, I have to hit left on my app. But we get the end of the last passage. And we have Jesus who's in the final week of his life. He's in the temple He's done his miracles, he's done his work, and now he's just clearing the decks with the false religion. He's clearing the decks with those who have turned his father's house into a den of robbers and thieves who who make people come and pay indulgences for forgiveness. Jesus has been and he's cleared the place out. He made a whip. I like the Jesus who made a whip, he's crazy. And he's come back to bring some teaching. He's come back to share with people. And he sees the Pharisees, the runners of that place, swagging about in their, in their tails, in their finest, making a big deal of their offering. And Jesus says in, in Luke 20, 45, just the, the one bit before our passage today, while all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teacher's of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. They devour widows' houses. Okay. That's our first part. Then we have the story we read today. And then following that, we have this little part. Luke 21, verse 5, Jesus is, is still there. And some of his disciples were, were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Jesus is not the guy to go to an art gallery with. 
And so maybe I go back to the passage that we have, and it maybe it has a different tone. Jesus has just highlighted how the Pharisees rob widows' houses. And then he goes on to say how this system, this temple system, is coming down. When, when we heard this passage, the, the story of the widow's might, maybe our usual default ideas kicked in. Mine did. Oh, I've got the, the passage of the widow's might. Brilliant. Okay. So um, I like that one. I know that one. Um, it's, it's a sermon about giving as a, a higher percentage of, you know, your income versus the wealthy and the rich people around you. It's, it's sacrificial giving. We can do that. It's giving all that you have and then depending on God. Okay, it's, it's, it's poverty is holy and, and, and God is, is in that. And I, I'm really sorry, friends. It was, it was really close to that. We nearly had that, that kind of comfortable bounce through it. Um, but this nod at me, this passage ate away and asked me, who is Jesus here? What is the character of Jesus? Would that really be his nature? Uh, my own bias towards this uh, passage, I realize is upheld, that I have a wealth bias, I have a comfortable bias towards the Scriptures. I didn't grow up in an affluent family, but my dad's a minister, and we were called to um, what happened to be quite an affluent area in Glasgow. When people know I'm from Glasgow over this side, often they have this image of like a buck-fast drinking, tracksuit swagging, wee Ned stoning about, um, threatening people, and, and then we all kind of got cleaned up and moved to Edinburgh. Um, <laughs> That, that buck-fast swagging tracksuit-wearing guy, um, he was James McSporran, you know, he's over. <laughs> Chili Gemma is from there. If we ever come across as being people of the world from Glasgow, it's not true. We're, we're suburban to the core, and, um, and I have a terrible bias on the world for that. Um, the biggest threat from where I was from was, my dad's going to sue your dad which translates as, my father will sue your father in court. I'm a comfortable person who looks down on the widow and who has a wealth bias. My background yells at me when I read through the scriptures, and it paints things differently. And then this passage comes along, and it kind of comes tumbling down for me when I see Jesus talking about it in that context. When we have that that story before where he says, look out for these Pharisees. I'm putting a huge warning flag over it. These guys, they're not good people. If they offer you ice cream or rugby tickets, do not take them. They're fake. These are rulers. These Pharisees run the temple. They, they forfeit money from people. And then on the other side, we have Jesus, who as the disciples are like, oh, wow, look at the beautiful topaz stones. He's like, yeah, that's coming down. It's all, it's all breaking. This whole system is coming down. And so we have this temple system at play here. When he says they devour the widows' houses, these Pharisees, what does that mean? And why did he put it right before the widow came to give? The Pharisees that run the temple had a huge following of women. Um, that was how they financed the lavish lifestyle. A lot of how the temple was financed was from the income of widows. 
The historian Josephus specifically alludes to this influence in his writings um, and says how the Pharisees had acquired uh, that they were directors of the conscience of widows. Doesn't that sound horrendous? This temple system at play here, this rich exploiting the widow for her offering to uphold their lifestyle, this is like the modern-day equivalent of land grabbing. Situations in nations where um, if a husband dies, someone else in the family will come and they will claim the land as family land and cast the widow from it. They receive the benefits and they exploit the widow. We literally give to IJM to stop that kind of activity. It's so similar to the work that the widow's in. Because we, we get to this person, we don't know her name. We don't know her story. We don't know if she has children. We, we don't know much about her. But we know what she had, and we know what she gave. She gave everything that was there. Two mites. According to that, that's about 1% of a day's wage. What is that? On the living wage, 1% of a day's wage is about 60p. That's all she had. She had it in two coins, and she came to the temple amongst all these rich, lavish people. She came to where the offering was given, and she puts it in. They gave publicly in this context. They, they came up and they, they lavishly poured in the offering. They had very clear signs in the temple courts publicly of where you could give. It was put in a shofar horn, and then that, that open space went into the bank. The treasury was almost called the money prison. That was the idea. And there's something, again, aghast for me, passionate about worship, that a horn that usually symbolizes a call to worship was the horn that was used for people to deposit their offering and to be exploited by the system around them. And we see this widow giving everything she has. And I realized that for a long time I thought, I meant to applaud that. I find this hard. I find this really, really hard. She walks forward and gives everything she has. She doesn't hold on to one and give the other. She gives both pieces in. And Jesus highlights two things about that. In verse 2, the, the scripture says she came in poor. And the word for that is uh, a Greek word, Penichras, which is needy or poor, not completely gone, needy and poor, hanging on. Uh, Jesus says, after she's given, Jesus highlights that she is tochas, which means she is destitute. She's got nothing now. Everything she's got has gone in. Reduced to beggary, destitute of influence, position, honor helpless. And the implication is she has nothing left to live on. She's come in the context of the, the Pharisees giving pompously, and something in the religious system there, something in that culture suggested that a widow would come and give her very last thing to live on. And no one in that culture stepped in to say, no, wait, 
And, and I find it hard because I suppose it looks very impressive from our lens. But what did Jesus say? Uh, you know, I, I thought Jesus was really chuffed. But I started to wonder about her. What, what's in her that felt she needed to give all of it away? Why are people letting her do that? Is, is she just fulfilling her need to be needed or need to be, to be seen? Why is Jesus okay with this? What did people do after? Did she feed her kids? Did she go and starve? Then I wondered, did Jesus actually commend this woman or did he highlight anything about her character, her spirit, her attitude, her position of giving, her perspective? Did he make any comment? Did he say this is how we should model it? Did the disciples jump in? No. We don't have any comment on it. What we have is an incident of a widow giving her very last, sandwiched between two passages where Jesus is refuting the system that predicates that, refuting the Pharisees and then saying he's tearing that down. All she had to live on. We have a woman who, who placed her religious duty above her well-being. We have Jesus highlighting this. And so, what do we start to do with this? This is a bit unsettling. It wasn't the great little story I remember as a kid. It doesn't preach nice. <laughs> and so I wonder, well, what, what kind of culture creates the, the guilt or the setup that a widow ends up giving her last two coins to the offering without somebody, we assume, stepping in or without somebody doing that. If we were to see this today, um, if we were to see somebody doing that in our church, we'd say, whoa, 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 okay. We see the love that you have, but we can't let you give your very last. We, we want to make sure you're provided for. We want to make sure you are cared for. Can we help you? Can we, can we help you manage things? Are you getting the support you need from our system? It kicks off something within us, eh? Kicks off a, a response that we see the image of God in that person, and it reflects something of the image of God in us, which is to love, which is to value another human. And when we see uh, nations that exploit the poor, when we see uh, gospels preach that say, send us your love offering and we'll sneeze on a handkerchief and bless you with that for $10 right now, we say, no, that's not right. I mean, it's easy to kind of adulate poverty when we have the option of stepping out of it any second. It's easy to enter in Lent and Ash Wednesday and give up something when we know that the temptation could just bring it right back in real easy. We're coming from a different place. The Bible makes it so clear that we love, that we support the widow. Jesus picks on it right there. James writes about it um, in chapter 1 of James. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Jesus is, is shouting out to us here, I think. Giving predicates the poor giving so that they can be blessed or so that we can measure our own giving as better or worse is going the way of the temple. It gets trashed. 
The passage uh, continues where the disciples remarking um, about the temple. And when Jesus says he's going to tear it all down, he must be setting up a new way. We're not left hopeless. We're not left just realizing that, that we might set up a system or that we in the world we live might support these systems which, which tear people down. Jesus offers a new way. So, heart giving, what does it mean? If we were the disciples there, if we were with Jesus as we are with Jesus now, what does it mean for us to respond to this? Where does it leave us? Where does it leave our church? How can we create a lifestyle worth living from what we see here? There's something about being freed and freeing others in giving. Giving's not a statement of your class or your finance. It's a state of our souls. It's the heart that's met Jesus and is desperate to see a world where people are cared for, where the wealth and power are in check and the poor loved into life. Jesus isn't comparing our giving to the widow as much as he's caring about how we treat and view the widow, the vulnerable. In that culture there, the widow might have just been a symbol of someone who was vulnerable, who could be taken advantage of, the abused. We see that in the, in the last 10 years since the financial crash of, of 2008, we got a chance to really wake up to a world that was preying on people's finances, a world running on the reins of greed. And now where we are, maybe in, a of, in the midst of a winter and anxiety, a shoring up, a, hey, let's put our borders tighter, let's just be aware of everything. There's, there's not a lot of, of tension. In our light and shadow that we have, we get to ask now, well, what are we giving? In the midst of all the issues around us, what are we giving? What is Jesus creating as the alternative to the system which he tore down? Something in that starts with having that identity rooted in Jesus, rooted in him. Free us and freeing others from greed. Freeing us from the pomp that the Pharisees had. Freeing us from the lens which holds down the widow in the temple, freeing us from an identity rooted in a postcode or a school level or an education system or an achievement structure. We get to take stock. We're a wildly generous church who um, love to give, who love to create beautiful things in our society, in the places that we spend the, you know, six and a half days of our week. People in this room right now pour their life out to create a fairer, more gracious, more whole system for those who are, are vulnerable. And so the question today is, in that place, who is Jesus to you? What is he doing today? When you, like Jesus, look up as he did in the temple courts, what do you see? Where is it lifting the widows of our society, the, the taken advantage of, the destitute. And I want to know, I want to know how do I become that generous and non-judgmental person? And all I can start with is just saying, here I am, Jesus. Here I am, Jesus.
It's uncomfortable. But that's the only place I know how to start. I get to come to the cross of Christ. I get to, to die to my old self, my false self, my I'm better than the poor self, my uh, go the poor generous widow self. I get to start a new way of seeing and, and living. So we start now from a fresh place where all those mindsets and all those ways that we see get to come to the cross and they get to come to Jesus, one who would love to open us up. Where the temple, where the church is not built on widow's homes being plundered on the backs of the poor. Where I, I can't celebrate a widow who's being ripped off. I can recognize her heart, her positive intention for generosity, but I must see something more. We seek the transformation of the whole of our society with the gospel. And this is part of just changing our motivation to see that. What would it actually start to look like to live in love in the opposite way to the Pharisees? How do we start with getting our motivation changed and our, and our lens changed on this. So a couple of things just to, to help us close in this. We recognize that everything is God's. All things belong to him. We don't get to pomp around what we give back. Um, I think it's important to know God's not out of pocket for what we have. When I was a, a child, I used to, to borrow money from my dad to get a birthday present for my dad. <laughs> and it'd be great. You'd be like, oh, can I get a birthday present? Oh, great. And I'd go out and you'd find something, you know, completely random that you quite liked or some chocolate you could later steal and then you could bring it back and present it back. And oh, thank you, wonderful. And it almost feels a bit like that with God. He kind of, he has it all anyway. We just sort of borrow it to, to do some stuff in life with and then it, it's all God's anyway he's not out of pocket waiting for us to, to tap us back he didn't buy you a pint because you forgot your change so we don't have to pay him back we recognize that we live in God we live in God first and then we live for God we know we're already loved we know that Jesus has already been on the cross he's not coming to do it again he didn't forget to cover something that we did. He's done. It's complete for you. And what he did to save us is perfect. And so it begins to change our perspective. Rather than thinking, I have to measure up, I have to measure up. And sometimes that looks, I have to, I have to give to kind of get past that. We get free from that because we know we're loved beyond measure. God hasn't got maths on how he measures us. We love from the cross, not for it. We love God because of what he's done, not for, for that. We don't please God so that he'll love us. We give then from the love of God, not for the love of God. We give from the love of God, not for the love of God. And that starts freeing us from that pomp, that ceremony, that stuff the Pharisees displayed. And it is enough to free us, enough to change us. Stopping us from measuring up and 
starting these systems that puff up ways that the poor are exploited. It frees us to, to give hilariously, to give generously, to give lovingly in life. So just as the, as the worship team come back up and help us to respond to this, help us to pray, I want to imagine, what was it that Jesus longed for then? If he saw the Pharisees' way of doing it and said, these are not good ways. And then if he saw this widow struggling to make life work, and he saw her pouring in literally her life to this. And then if he saw the temple set up, all that system, and said, this is coming down, then what did Jesus propose is coming back up? Jesus is not just a God of deconstruction. And our Christianity can't just go to a place of deconstruction. Jesus is always in the movement of reconstruction, redesign, tweak, move. So what do we have then? What do we have? A church where we can take care of the vulnerable, where our faith informs our giving fully, it forms our lifestyle, where we are generous, where we say no to a world where our systems create conditions for poverty. What if we love creating a world where we actually use what's in us to create work and create opportunity for other people? Where we tackle the injustice in our systems and in our own selves? Where we live and bring breath and words and influence to the systems surrounding us in housing and pay and jobs and living conditions? Where we work to lift the quality of life day in and day out for every individual, where the hope of the gospel provides hope for others. The thing that is full of hope for me in this is that when I am seared by this passage and and wonder what's going on, my hope is to look at the church. My hope is to see in people the other way that Jesus proposed. In this room just now, and in, in the, the, where the youth are right now and where the children are right now, the creative solutions to the worst problems of humanity are being developed. People right now are encountering the living God, the creator of all things, who's pouring out wisdom, who's pouring out ideas, who's pouring his heart into people, that it would break for society, that it would break for the widow. In this room just now, we see people who work in families, who sit down at the table every day and set out a new way of being. We see people who work at every end of that system for the widow, perhaps. The lawyer who creates justice. The counselor who works through it. The civil servant who helps enable housing. This is happening across all of us. Week to week, we're part of something far bigger. This is the gathering to celebrate it. But as we go, 12.30, that's when something starts to happen across this city, across this nation, where our hearts are moved by the Lord and then we live connected to each other across this city, bringing life, 
creating that new system, that new way that Jesus created, doesn't look like a temple. It looks like a people. And so as we just begin to pray on this, begin to close, I just want us to think, do we know that we're loved by God? Do we know that we could be part of this incredible new way of being? There's an invitation to that, maybe for the first time this morning. Or there's an opportunity to step further into that as we continue to work this out, this Jesus who's creating a new and living way that starts in our hearts and gives out to the world. Amen.